Um, I'm going to invite Gary up and um, I'm going to pray for him. And I've heard this morning about sheds, which I'm really intrigued about. Um, we should be building a shed, Gary, I reckon. He's got a shed, okay. But he hasn't brought it with him, mate. That's maybe next time. I'm going to pray for you if that's okay. And then I'm going to hand over to Gary. So Jesus, we thank you so much for Gary. Thank you for the word that you've, we believe that you've laid in his heart. I pray this morning as he, as he shares, I pray we'll have ears to hear uh, what you're saying to us as a church and what you're saying to us as individuals. In the precious and mighty name of Jesus, I pray these things. Amen. Thank you very much, Jamie. And finally... I know you've been waiting all of your Christian lives for this, but finally, a sermon about sheds. Uh, we are in Matthew chapter 17, and, uh, and here's, uh, let's start off with the Bible, and then we'll get to the shed. So, uh, Matthew chapter 17 Verse 1, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters or sheds, as it says in the Cadge translation. One for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Finally, a sermon about sheds. I have, a, I have to declare an interest here, a vested interest, because I have a shed. Anybody else got a shed? Any of the... Oh, that's not a very good representation of shed ownership in this church. I was expecting much more. Are some of you hiding your shed under a bushel? Gentlemen, how many of you have got a shed? Ladies, how many of you have got a shed? It's not allowed to be the same shed. Okay, I'm talking to possibly a quarter of the congregation this morning. I love my shed. When I stopped being a pastor... Um, three years ago, I was exhausted, I was broken, I was not in a good place with God or with church. And I took six months off, and in those six months, I built a shed. Full disclosure, my, uh, my very good friend Dave Agent Shed Wrist, and I took the skeleton of, of an old summer house and completely rebuilt it. 
We laid a, a proper base. We, we over-engineered a wooden platform. We, we raised the walls and the roof. We insulated it. We panelled it. We installed heat and light and internet. I've got 12 sockets in there. Gentlemen, are you, are you jealous? Anybody got more than 12 sockets in their shed? I'm the socket master here. And I've got a fridge. It became shed quarters. And when I'm not driving a hearse, I'm often to be found in shed quarters, reading, writing, thinking. As I write this sermon, guess where I am? And as I stand here preaching this sermon, guess where I'd rather be? I lead a Facebook-based support group for Christians who don't feel like church is a perfect match for them. And we're all different, and it should come as no surprise that however brilliant the church is, and I happen to think this one is pretty wonderful, it cannot be everything to everyone. The Christian misfit community is run from shed quarters. And over the last two and a half years, what we've found is that for some people, sharing an online connection with a middle-aged introvert in a shed is how they connect with God. So I have a vested interest in sheds. It's my safe place, it's my slow-down place, it's my still place. And Peter had a thing about sheds too. Let's walk through the transfiguration again, because that's what we're here for. We're part way through a series of sermons on Peter's encounters with Jesus. And the transfiguration is, at heart, a dramatic encounter between Jesus and James and John. Um, sorry, Peter and James and John and Jesus. It's one of those stories where themes collide. Every character is there for a reason and represents something bigger than themselves, someone bigger than them. So let's have a look at it again. Verse 1, Jesus makes a, oh, verse 1, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So Jesus has taken three of the disciples. He's already kind of separating people into groups because we all need something different from, from Jesus. He relates to us all slightly differently. Why he chose those three, who knows? I'm not Jesus. I can't tell you. But he does. He takes those three and he makes a point of taking them up a high mountain. And in the Bible, mountains are places of meeting with God. Mount Sinai, Mount Nebo, Mount Carmel, Mount Zion, these are all high places. There are many others as well. And symbolically, they are places of isolation, separation, and proximity to God. When you're at the top of a mountain, unless it happens to be Snowden, you're pretty, you're pretty much on your own. 
and you you look you look down and and you you feel that sense of being slightly separate from the rest of the world but you also feel as if you're closer to god so he takes them up a mountain verse 2 jesus transfigures before them there he was transfigured before them his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light the best way to think of this is that for a time Jesus let Peter James and John see the godness inside him Philippians 2 verse 7 tells us that when Jesus came to the earth he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself and that phrase he made himself nothing is otherwise translated as he emptied himself and it's it's a it's, it's a massively important theological point what did jesus empty himself of to come to earth i'll let pastor phil sort out the details of that at a later time but in coming to earth jesus had to restrict himself to some degree he was bound to a body he had to eat he had to sleep he got tired he became flesh and dwelt amongst us and that is that's a massively important theological point is that he became one of us the ultimate plan of jesus was to build a bridge to restore the connection between man and god so he had to be fully man and fully god in order for that bridge to reach each side I mean you can build a one-ended bridge. You can do it. It's called a pier. You know where I come from is just down the road from South End, the longest pier in the world. It's it's over a mile long. But you still can't cross the Thames with it. You get wet feet if you try that. A one-ended bridge is is no good. Only a savior who is fully God and fully man can build a bridge that connects at both ends. Remove Jesus humanity or his divinity and you have no bridge. And with all that said, we can't ignore the fact that Jesus was special. The disciples knew this. But they didn't know just how special And on the mount of transfiguration Jesus lets them see inside himself just just for a, a a moment or two just for a few seconds they can see some element of his divinity the bible says his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as bright as the light bright and shining in the bible means god the shekinah glory you know moses coming down from mount sinai he's met with god and his face is shining when when you see a a, a bright and shining thing in god in very uh, in in the bible invariably god is to blame so verse 3 
Just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. See, as if this, this, this being able to see the, the godness of Jesus, if, as if that wasn't enough, suddenly there are two other characters appearing on this mountaintop. One is identified as Moses and the other as Elijah. Now, they are both major Old Testament characters. Go to Sunday school, you'll learn about these guys. They, are, they both feature heaven, he, heavily and heavenly, heavily. They're also both supposed to be dead. Now Moses, 1500 BC, thereabouts. Elijah, 750 BC, thereabouts. They're both supposed to be dead. And we're getting more insight into the spiritual realities of God. As the disciples are meeting the heroes of their faith and they are coming face to face with evidence of life after death. Just uh, bear with me for a second here. I don't know how many times you've, you've sort of worked through in detail and envisioned the transfiguration and what's actually happening at this point. Because if there is no life after death, what's going to happen is that Moses and Elijah are going are, are to appear there rather shocked and stunned, I have to say, not looking their best. And Elijah is going to turn to Moses and he's going to say, Moses, you were my hero. You, you brought the law. You told us, you described the law to us. You went up Mount Sinai. You came down with the, with the tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments on them. We followed your law. We dedicated ourselves to, to pursuing the themes and the, the principles that you had laid down. And, Mos and Moses is going to turn to Elijah and say, Who are you? They, these are not contemporaries. They may sit next to each other on the Sunday school wall, but they were, they were as far apart as we are from Robin Hood. They were as far apart from each other. But they represent, they represent the law and the prophets. Moses represents the law. Jesus may have been frustrated by the teachers of the law and the interpreters of the law and the hypocrites who used the law to their own advantage, but he was very clear in saying that he did not come to remove the law. And here he is introducing the disciples who are the future of the church, to the embodiment of the law. One of the deepest taproots of the faith. 
And Elijah represents the prophets, the direct mouthpiece of God. For hundreds of years, God had spoken to his people through prophets. Sometimes they listened, sometimes they didn't listen. And it was messy, and it was upsetting at times, and it was encouraging, and it was patient at times. But that's what God did. And here is Jesus introducing the future of the church to the mouthpiece of the faith. See what I mean about every character here representing something, being symbolic of something. Here is a meeting of the major themes of of theology. And Jesus is showing the disciples that God still wants and still is going to want to speak to his people. Verse 4. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's, for, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three sheds. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Here come the sheds. We'll come back to the sheds in a minute. Verse 5. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. So a bright cloud envelops the group. And as we've seen, bright equals God. And the cloud reinforces that image. Moses and Elijah have both met with God on mountains before. And bright clouds are are a theme in their meetings. Moses, Exodus 19, Mount Sinai, receives the law when a cloud envelops him. And God speaks in the cloud. And when he comes down the mountain, the people can't look at him because his face is shining so brightly. Elijah, 1 Kings 18, Mount Carmel challenges the prophets of Baal to a sacrifice off to decide who worships the true God. 850 prophets of Baal have the first go and they can't get any joy out of their God even when they start cutting themselves. Elijah then calls down the fire of heaven on his sacrifice and the sacrifice, along with the barbecue, its fuel and a load of water they poured on it, all disappear in a, in a fiery, smoky cloud. Moses and Elijah would not miss the meaning of the cloud. And then the voice of God says to the disciples, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. I mean, the the disciples, sometimes we, we, uh, uh, we, we take the mick out of the disciples slightly because they weren't all the cleverest people in the world. But even the dullest knife in the drawer is going to understand this is a major spiritual moment. This is layer upon layer of signs and symbols and imagery and meaning. Verse 6. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. It's all too much for the disciples. They fall to the ground, terrified. I don't blame them. When we're confronted with an overwhelming amount of extraordinary input, we tend to default to fear. 
That's, that's what tends to happen, isn't it? When, when things around us suddenly spiral out of our understanding, our default is fear. The movies would make us think that everyone should run towards an explosion and should tackle every threat. But the truth is, we are programmed to curl up in a ball and start whimpering. Because that tends to be the best way to survive. Jesus comes to them, touches them, they're assured of their safety, they open their eyes, and Moses and Elijah have gone. The cloud has gone, the voice has gone. And they're there, just three disciples and Jesus. And we might ask the perfectly reasonable question, what's all that about then? was all that what what is the transfiguration actually about i mean it's impressive but what's it all about well firstly it was all about an experience with god the disciples had a profound undeniable experience with god These are three of the guys who were going to found the church when Jesus ascended to heaven. They are going to need spiritual certainties that they can rely on, like anchors for their faith. This is why it's important to bank the memories and milestones of our Christian experience. Days will come when we will doubt. It happens to every single Christian. At those times, it's really helpful to be able to think back to a powerful day in your Christian experience and say, well, right now my faith might be a bit shaky, but I know on that day, I knew. I was certain. I was absolutely sure that I was saved. And those anchors are helpful to keep us stable until the storm passes, which it does. So the Bible tells us that Peter denied Jesus later. I mean, not even coming face to face with with Moses, Elijah and the voice of God is enough to immunize a man from the powerful questioning of a teenage girl, apparently. But we all need to cut ourselves some slack from time to time, and he came good in the end. So it's important to have experiences with God and to make a definite note. You know, when you are going through an experience, whether it's, it's your baptism, your salvation, whether it's just a, a you know a particularly uh, great worship time at church, whether it is sat with one of your Christian friends and 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 having a a profound chat, whether it's seeing a, a prayer answered, whatever it is, you know, reading the Bible and something jumps out at you and 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 makes life make sense. Bank the memory. Think to yourself, God is showing me this now because I'm going to need to know this later. 
you know, we we can go through our Christian life just relying on whatever's in front of us at the time, and and relying on oh, I'll always I'll always have access to the Bible. I'll always have access to. I can always pray. I can always do this. I can always do that. Take it from one who's been beaten up by Christianity a bit over the years. What we, what we bank inside ourselves is really valuable when the going gets tough. Because sometimes you don't want to read the Bible. You don't want to talk to your Christian friends. You don't want to pray. Sometimes you just want to curl up in a ball. And it's at those times that the things that you've invested inside yourself, sometimes years before, worm their way into where something needs to change inside you. So firstly, it was all about an experience of God. Secondly, it was all about symbolism. The symbolism we've discussed was important. And, and it was important for the disciples to know that the new church needed to respect the roots of law and prophecy that already existed. I, I'm constantly amazed at how many Christians are shocked to find out that Christianity is rooted in Judaism. Right? Jesus and the disciples were Jews. The Old Testament is very largely the Jewish scriptures. The history of conflict and outright hatred that's existed between Christians and Jews over the centuries is nothing to do with God and it's everything to do with selfishness and the greed in mankind. It would have been easier in many ways for the disciples to start with a clean sheet of papyrus when they were inventing the church. It's usually easier to start something new than it is to revive, restore, reinterpret, redefine something that already exists. It's easier to start a new church than it is to breathe life into an existing one. But in God's plan, easy isn't, always the main criteria or isn't often the main criteria and the disciples needed to know that back then and we need to know that today as well because the law is still important I know we live in a time of grace but the law is still important prophecy is the, 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 the desire for God to speak to us today is still important. These, these symbols that were established on the day of trans, or during Jesus' transfiguration, they're still important. So firstly, it was all about an experience of God. Secondly, it's all about symbolism. Thirdly, it's all about sheds. Yay, the sheds are back. Remember the sheds? Remember that bit in the story where Peter and his mates built three sheds? No, I don't either, because they, they didn't actually, did they? The sheds weren't built, because the transfiguration story is really quick. I don't know, 
I don't know how long you think the, the, the transfiguration event took. But let's, let's look at it. Think of the Sermon on the Mount. All those people sitting through the day and the disciples don't know how they're going to feed everyone. Profoundly impactful but slow. Think of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. It's days from the start of that story to the end. Think of Moses up Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments. He's up there so long the people waiting for him have invented a new religion by the time he comes down. But let's trace through the transfiguration. Verse 2, there he was transfigured before them. Verse 3, just then Moses and Elijah appeared. Verse 4, Peter starts to ask about sheds. Verse 5, while he was still speaking, the voice of God came. Verse 6, when the disciples heard this, they fell down. Verse 8, when they got up, they saw only Jesus. How long's that? The whole transfiguration was quicker than our closing song will be this morning. Significantly less time than this sermon. So why did Peter offer to build sheds? Or shelters or booths, depending on which version you read. Because, was he, because he panicked? It was the first thing that came into his head? Possibly. Most likely, he was simply expecting whatever was going to happen was going to take longer than it did. Exodus 23, 14 to 19, told, the people of God are told to hold three festivals a year, the last of which was the festival of ingathering or tabernacles or booths or sheds. Because the festival took place in the open fields and lasted a week, the people all built shelters for their families. It was a, a proto-Glastonbury without the mud and the influences. And Peter's gut reaction on this mountaintop when, when, when Jesus, Moses, Elijah, his gut reaction is to turn to James and John and say, settle in boys, this is going to be epic. This is going to take a while. My shed goes at a slow pace, and I love it for that. Sometimes that's what God wants for us. Be still and know that I am God. Jesus took himself off to a quiet place to pray. Sometimes that's what we need. But the transfiguration was not that kind of encounter. So it, it didn't need sheds. Sometimes the most powerful things in life happen really quickly. A first kiss that changes the rest of your life takes a moment, unless you're really lucky. <laughs> a winning goal takes a second to score. 
The moment a mother's life upends itself is ultimately the length of one push. I have no personal experience, although I've been a witness a couple of times. And when God acts, he often acts really quickly. He spoke a word and creation came into being. There was a sound like the roaring of a mighty wind and the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost and the church was born. On a train in 1989, sitting alone on the way from Chelmsford to London, reading a cartoon tract, I gave my heart to Jesus and I was born again. It was a profound moment that I can still remember. I need a shed these days to work out some of the God stuff. But on that day, in that carriage, a few seconds of the unmistakable presence of God was enough to change my life. So pulling the threads together, the transfiguration shows us the nature of Jesus. It shows us that God communicates through all sorts of different ways. Be be open to the ways that God will speak to you. Be open to the slow contemplation. Find yourself a shed. Build yourself a shed. Make sure that in your life there is somewhere, it doesn't have to be a shed, but somewhere you can spend time with God. Because there will be times when God wants to speak to us slowly, quietly, in meditation and contemplation. But be open as well to the jolt, the sudden moment of overwhelming revelation. When the spiritual going gets freaky, try not to roll yourself up in a ball and whimper. Open your heart to what God wants to say in an instant. Because there will be times that that's what he wants to do. And if we restrict ourselves and say, God only ever speaks to me like this and define one way, we are going to miss so much of what God says. Because there's not just two ways. It's not just slow and fast. There are a myriad different ways in which God speaks to us. going to leave it there this morning this is your subtle hint that we're coming near to the end of the sermon thank you very much for listening going back to me shed